Welcome back to After the Idea, a podcast by Chicago Ideas. I'm Vanessa, your host. If you're new to After the Idea, we're so happy you joined us. Chicago Ideas is the ideas platform for everyone, and After Idea is a podcast to elevate the ideas, initiatives, and the impact of changemakers in the city of Chicago and beyond. Learn more about all we have to offer from events to content and more at chicagoideas.com. I am so excited to introduce today's guest, Bethany McLean. She is a force, and if you're an original Chicago Ideas fan, you may have seen her on our platform before. Bethany is a contributing editor at Vanity Fair and has written some of the most groundbreaking stories of our time, including Is Enron Overpriced?, which appeared in Fortune magazine and was integral in exposing 2001's Enron scandal. Welcome, Bethany. I'm so excited to dive in. But before we do that, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, I thought we were in spring here in Chicago, but it's... There's no such thing as spring in Chicago. No. My ankles were a little chilly. I was like, I'm going to do the cropped thing, but was not a good move on my part. (laughs) Um, But I'm really excited to be here today. For those of you who don't know, Bethany will be joining us later this spring, we'll call it that, for a program that will explore the power of journalism. Um, She'll sit down with fellow journalist John Carreyrou for a can't-miss conversation. Before that, though, Bethany, I'd love to get your perspective on journalism today. A question that's top of mind for me in this era of exposés and true crime podcasts and social media, it kind of feels like journalists has taken on in some ways like a whole new form. And and my question for, for um, people like you have been doing this for a while, what makes a journalist? Who gets to wear that title? Well, I think the good and bad thing about the way the journalism world has changed is that so many more people can wear that title. When I started in journalism back in 1995, if you were going to be heard, you had to be working for an official publication. And that was the only way to get your voice out there. And that was that was the only medium of exposure. And so as journalism has changed and blogs have grown and Twitter has become a phenomenon and so many other forms of of media are out there, many more people can get their voices heard. And I think... in, in one respect, that's really a positive, right? Because you don't have to be a official journalist working for somebody in order to be heard. And I think that's added a lot of richness um, to the voices out there. I think there are some not good things that have come along right. with, with that as well. But I'm, I'm trying to start by looking at the bright side. <laughs> I think that there's always two sides to any coin. And I think that, like you said, it's giving people a platform to share their ideas is never a bad thing. However, should there be some gating to journalism? Because I think that in in this era of fake news or or when things are coming out and we don't know what outlets we can trust if there's not sort of a trusted publication or media outlet that's behind a voice what does that mean well i think that is the scary thing is that with the multiplicity of voices out there one you can do what humans like to do, which is listen to those that already agree with you. And so you're less likely to have to encounter opinions that you don't already like, that you don't already agree with, because you can cherry pick, right? And you can cherry pick exactly what you see and and who you hear. And I think that's obviously not such a good thing. And even if it's just reinforcing of ideology, it's also just limiting in the sense that if you picked up the paper of old, you might find yourself reading a story that you didn't think you had any interest in, but something about it captivates you and 
your consciousness expands. And I think that's actually harder to do Mm -hmm. today when you tend to look for the things you already know you're interested in. I also have a whole thing around freedom of speech that is (laughs) freedom of speech also comes with responsibility. And and what that meant in the old days was that if you were going to say something not nice about somebody, you had to give them a chance to respond first. And look, it can be really fun to be snarky and say something not nice about somebody when you actually have to pick up the phone or tell them face to face, this is what I'm saying. What do you want to say in response? That part's not so fun. And that's the check on that. That was the important check. And I feel like that check is gone in a lot of the platforms that have exploded where people take for granted freedom of speech, but they don't have the commensurate responsibility to go with it. And would you say that when you started out as a journalist, was that just a part of the process? You like you always you like, you know, I'm going to write this story. I'm going to call so and so's people and I'm going to see if if they wanted to share a statement. Oh, absolutely. The worst thing you could do and it would probably get you fired from most jobs is if you ran something without asking somebody for comment and any good editor would say where's where's the comment here what what do they what do they say in response and you have to do that and it's a, frankly a kind of unpleasant part of the process because you have to be willing to listen and be willing to listen to the fact that you might be wrong and it's important it's sort of a i think old school journalists had a no surprises policy which meant that nobody you were writing critically about was going to pick up what you'd written and not know that it was coming it, and not know that it was coming and not have had a chance to respond to it and that's detailed grungy not necessarily fun work, but to me, it's really important component of freedom of speech in the press. That's a learning for me. I would say that, you know, as an avid reader of pieces that journalists may write and, and someone who who likes to keep up with current events, I've always seen like so-and-so chose not to comment or no comment from whoever was being written about. But I actually didn't know that that was somewhat of a protocol when you were writing a piece. And and that's so interesting because now when in, in the era of like a whole journalistic piece can be like a tweet thread, you know, like, and there's like an hour piece you're reading that's just like a thread of tweets. Like, where is the opportunity for comment there? Right. And you could argue, I guess, on Twitter that the person then can comment too in their own tweet. But what takes away is the opportunity to say before something's in the public realm, wait, that's not right. And to force the person who's writing it to think and to be responsible. That is eye-opening for me and, and, and really interesting perspective. I think it can be argued now more than ever in this time where I think everyone has a voice if they want it, that journalism, I'm going to say journalism with a capital J, is essential because both to crack large stories, but also to share different perspectives. And if you're doing it well and you're doing it the correct way, that's what it should do. And it offers different perspectives than maybe other media might be offering. And that's what leads me to thinking about some of the stories that you've written and what prompts them. You know, like what prompts coverage of an Enron or or what prompts you to sit down with like a Martin Shkreli? Like what is it? So for me, it's always been curiosity. And um, perhaps to a not good degree, I've been driven less by sort of practical thoughts of could this be a big story? Is this is this something everybody wants to read? And more just by my own curiosity. So when I wrote about Enron, I had really no inkling that it was going to become Enron. Yeah, I was interested because the numbers didn't seem to add up with the perception of the company, meaning this was an incredibly admired company that everybody said was run by the smartest guys in the room, incredibly highly valued by the stock market, celebrated. And the numbers didn't back that up. And I was fascinated by that disconnect and just curious about how it existed. But I had no idea that it was going to become the corporate scandal that it that it became. I suppose Martin Shkreli maybe was a little bit different, although I think when I wrote about him, 
he hadn't really totally crossed into the mainstream popular consciousness either. Can I you just announce his last name for me again. Shkreli. I struggle. Shakreli. I, I might still not be quite perfect. Oh my goodness. Right? Our ugly and I didn't even, tongues, I didn't right? even mean <laughs> to like cut you off, but I'm like, I'm gonna get this right. Shakreli. Okay. Okay. Um, We're back. I hope. I think. Um, <laughs> anyway, but I just thought, who is this character? And I just, I got his email from someone who knew him and just emailed him out of the blue and was like, Can I come hang out with you? I just want to know who you are. And wow. he was like, Sure. Sure. <laughs> so, and that's, I mean, the glory of journalism is getting to pursue your own curiosity and getting to sit down with really interesting people, right? And how often, is, I don't think people think of like what comes first. Like you read these amazing stories where you're like, what came first? Like, how did you get in the room with him? How often is that the case where you're like, hi, I'd love to come learn more about it's, you. And they're like, come on. No, it's actually really rare, particularly for somebody who's finding them caught in a moment of controversy, right? Especially in this day and age, those people are usually surrounded by a mountain of of legal people and PR people who are advising them and telling them not to talk. And you usually, if you're trying to get to those people, you have to go through a million hoops. Mm -hmm. It was actually one of the refreshing things about Martin, dare I use that word, just to be able to email him directly and have him say, sure, without being referred to a public relations person or a lawyer who had to clear it first. Yeah. Something that I think, speaking of curiosity, I've been speaking with a lot of people about sort of just American consciousness and our obsession right now with scandal and our obsession with true crime and our obsession with mysteries and and that sort of propelling people into this realm where everyone feels as if they are a journalist. Um, investigative journalism specifically, it's sort of like gone from writing to podcasts to documentary. And in this era, we're like, there's a new true crime podcast popping up on your iTunes like every day. What are your thoughts on that? Like, I guess that's it's a really interesting question. I guess it would I would say that maybe there's a at its best, there's a hankering for the truth, for the story behind the story, yeah. and an awareness that surface reality is not always what it's cracked up to be. I think back to how naive in many ways business coverage was in the early part of the 1990s and through the run-up to the collapse of the first dot-com boom. And then even after that, um, before the financial crisis, that we just didn't it was really a lack of imagination, right? You just couldn't believe that things like the largest banks in America collapsing could possibly happen. Right. But there was there was a naivete about trusting corporate executives and about trusting the surface story, I think. And so I think maybe today there's a desire to to get underneath that a little bit more and to see what what the under what the underlying reality may be. That's that's at its best. I mean, I guess on a more negative side I worry that the grunt work of investigative journalism is not usually the flashy output at the end. It may be pieces that, A, don't come to fruition because you've pursued them and you realize there's nothing there, or B, it may be not, not that snazzy, but really important. And so I worry a little bit, I guess, that the focus on the snazzy and yes. sexy and true crime may take away from the focus on the somewhat more mundane but critically important um, infrastructure of our lives. And the rise of this kind of true crime series doesn't fix the underlying issue in journalism, which is just the lack of money, the way that the way the business yes. model has fallen apart. And so it's much harder. You don't have the luxury anymore of pursuing stories that may not work out. It's much harder to do that. Um, if you're freelance, certainly. And even if you're at a publication, there's a lot more pressure around publishing. Yeah. So the old days where you could maybe spend six months on a story and it wouldn't work. 
And maybe that wasn't great for your career if you did that all the time. But it was okay if it happened. You could right? take risks. You, you, you could do that. And I'm, I'm not sure what we do without that. And that's essentially what I was trying to uncover here is, is the flashy, the snazzy, the really like cool parts of it. I don't think that we're seeing the grunt work and we're seeing what goes into really thoughtfully, authentically, and honestly, respectfully telling these stories. And as a journalist, I was just so curious on your perspective of that because I'm always like, what does it take to just sort of jump in and tell a story? You said curiosity is your prompt most of the time. But I don't think that in my field right now, I don't consider myself a journalist yet. I couldn't wake up with a curious nature and, and feel like it's my place to sort of tell certain stories because I don't know if I know what goes behind it. And I think that's sort of like a disconnect right now is that people think that it's just telling a story. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I don't know if journalists are made or born, but I guess I would say to some extent it is a craft, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember being really stunned. This is going to sound really obvious, but when I made the transition into journalism, I remember being really stunned to learn the pages and pages and pages of notes and the interviews you would do to boil it down to a 500-word story. But it wasn't just that you talked to someone and that was the story. It right. was all of the richness of the reporting and the work that then allowed you to form a you and to have the facts that would enable you to write the story. And so I guess that's it's it's not supposed to be easy. Yep, it's not supposed to be easy. I think that's a really great way to put it because I think we get wrapped up in the the aftermath of it all. Right. Or people say, oh, I just want to be a writer and I love writing. And I always think, first of all, A, if you really actually write for a living, you don't love it. You kind of have a love-hate relationship with it. But it's if it's, still your if, it's job. if it's really easy for you and it's just flowing, I'm sorry something is going wrong because writing is meant to be, it's, it, I think at its best, it has to be a little bit painful. It's work in the best of ways. But getting to the perspective that you want to share is not supposed to be an easy process either. And I, I mean that in the best of ways. You know, it's, yeah. it's satisfying work. Exactly. Just like any any passion you have, it's like you have to you have to work at it. Right. So I, I know we talked about the Shakreli interview a little bit already, but the reason why I want to circle back to it is I think it's a really incredible example of how journalism can make us look at a different perspective. Kind of like what you said, where like in the days where we had to pick up a newspaper, we stumbled across a story we wouldn't have searched for, or maybe the algorithm would not have served us based on our activity. And I was reading that piece, actually, and it definitely served, even being a few years old, it definitely served me a different perspective than what I would have thought based on what the media was serving me about this figure. Was that your goal for that piece? So no, when he burst into the headlines for having done what he did, raise the price of this drug by 5,000% or whatever it was, I just thought, I have to talk to this guy. So I didn't, I try not to have a view going in. I try to, I try to be as open to different views as I possibly can, because that's just the way to be intellectually honest. Mm -hmm. But I am, and I have to watch this in myself a little bit, I am instinctively contrarian. So if everybody loves something, I'm slightly more likely to think, hmm. Mm. And if everybody has decided that somebody is public enemy number one, as people did about Martin Shkreli, I'm slightly more likely to be open to the, the opposite, to a different alternative. And I had a little more empathy for him than I think than I think people people covering yep. it did. And I guess there are two things that made me see him through, a few things that made me see him through a different lens. One was that he, a lot of the most over-the-top jerky things he's done have been 
a naive trying on of a persona mm -hmm. without realizing how this was going to affect his real life because he just thought he grew up in an era where you could try on personas online and he thought he was just trying on personas. And so there, there's a little component of that. Um, being in his company's offices before it collapsed, there was a component of Martin that really wanted to do good, that really wanted to take the profits he would make and use them to develop drugs for other diseases that didn't have cures. He didn't get to stick around long enough to see if that was true or not, yep. right? It was at the early stages, but there were certainly people who were working with him who were real people and who believed that that was true and that was what he wanted to do. But I think the biggest thing that gave me a different perspective on Martin was that this is what the pharmaceutical industry does in ways that are far more pernicious than what Martin did. Mm -hmm. So Martin took the price of a single drug and raised it a lot. But the pharmaceutical industry, Big Pharma, raise, raises prices on their drugs by double digits every year. And that cost the American health system so much more. There was a company at the time that was highly celebrated called Valiant that was doing exactly the same thing Martin did. And all of the supposedly smartest investors on Wall Street were in love with this company. And I remember sitting down with one of them and saying, well, why is what Valiant is doing any different than what Martin Shkreli did? And the guy looked at me and said, that's a really good question. And so I thought, as we so often in our society do, we wanted to find the villain, the person who was the bad person doing all these evil things to us. And once we took care of that person, well, our problems were solved. And so that's what we wanted to do with Martin. And we did. He's in jail for unrelated crimes, it should be said, but he's in jail. And so then we want to believe problem solved. But in actuality, no, Martin was just sort of pushed forward and pushed himself forward as the public face of all of this. But the reality is much, much uglier and worse. Absolutely. That's very interesting. Um, and for any listeners who are not familiar with Martin Screlly and that story, you should definitely do a little Google search and you should definitely read Bethany's interview with him because it's pretty interesting. So I want to pivot a little bit from some of the articles and pieces that you've written to some of your books. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you've authored or co-authored at this point four. Yes. Two big books and two mini books. Okay. Okay. All books, which is great because I haven't even gotten close to that. How do you like sort of cross apply, I would say, the work that you're doing as a journalist to the work that you do as like a book author is that different is that the same do you is it like is there anything different in like the the medium if you will no a book is just a much longer piece of work and takes over your life a lot more although I've, had, although I've had stories that have taken over my my life too but I think the trick with a book is just it has to be something that you really think is worthy of, of, of people's time. Mm -hmm. Someone said to me once, the trick isn't, it's not about whether people will spend money for your book or not. It's about, is this topic really interesting and important enough for people to be willing to commit their time? And so I always try to see books through that, or prospective books through that lens. Yeah. And so you talked about sort of the time it takes you how long did the Enron piece take you, like from start to finish, from idea to... So the Enron piece was, it's kind of an odd piece because it was very, it kind of goes back to the point I was making earlier about sometimes initial pieces of investigative journalism being more grungy than than, than snazzy. So my Enron piece was more of a financial excavation yeah. than it was true investigative journalism going out and talking to the company's employees. It was much more a deep dive into the company's numbers. And I'd say it took probably a month. Okay. Maybe it took maybe six weeks. Okay. But it wasn't 
like doing a piece where you have to go out and find former employees to talk to you and figure out the truth of what happened. That was the book for me, the, the smartest guys in the room. The, the initial Enron piece really was it was it was financial excavation yeah. more than anything Which else. Which is so interesting to see what it what it grew into and, and sort of leading to the smartest right. guys in the room, which right. is when I would say the investigative piece came in. Right. And how long did that take? Um, <laughs> that, that was that was different. But I want I want to pause yeah. on that, that piece for just for a minute because I think one great thing about journalism is that so many different backgrounds can be useful to you as a journalist. Okay. And I had this very unconventional background because I was a math major and then I, I worked in finance. And I came to journalism and was kind of one of a kind for having worked on Wall Street, at least at that, that point in time. And it was a really odd background for a journalist. I had never written. I didn't have any clips. I hadn't been published anywhere. Wow. And I got my job at Fortune as a, as a fact checker because they knew I could do the yeah, numbers. I was going to ask I could how do the that numbers. Yeah, I could do the numbers in a business story. And so what I love about the Enron story is it really is this two worlds colliding or this this perfect storm, but in a good way, yes. where my odd background just made me exactly the right person to do this piece at this moment in time. And I love that about journalism in general, that these skills you have that come from elsewhere in your life can turn out to be to be really important. But yeah, the book was a very different because the only way the book could work was by getting people to talk. It was in some ways much more difficult because once there's a whole criminal investigation surrounding a company, um, getting through to people can be pretty difficult. So I'd say the book, we started work on it, um, I'd say it was about a year and a half. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then for you, you, you just talking about sort of the Enron piece, the, the article being sort of this happy storm of, of both of your worlds colliding. Was it scary to then jump into the investigative journalism part of like putting that book together? Because that is kind of your first foray. Yeah. To be to be honest, I would not have done it. I owe a big debt of gratitude to my editor at the time, a guy named Joe Nocera, who I co-authored my second book with, because I was 30, 31. Okay. I'd been at Fortune for five years, primarily as a fact checker. I'd written maybe two or three 2,000 or 3,000 word stories. Every chapter of a book has to be, you know, seven to 10,000 words, right? There is no way I would have had the mojo to go out and pitch a book at that stage in my career. And Joe was the one who said, you need to do a book. This is this is important. And he's the one who suggested I work with a guy named Peter Alkind, mm-hmm. who was a um, fortune writer at the time as well, who was based in Texas and sort of knew the whole Texas thing. And Joe really put us together and orchestrated that. And I owe him a debt of gratitude because it's not something I would have done, nor frankly would I have been able to to pull it off. Yeah, at that. that's incredible. I just I didn't have the experience necessary to do it at that point. And I learned a ton through doing that and through working with Peter. So I'm sure at this point, a lot of people know this, but if they don't, The Smartest Guys in the Room inspired an Academy Award nominated documentary. Did you play a role in the documentary at all? Did you get sort of any sort of creative license there or any part of it? Was it just like, this is inspiring it and now we're done? So mostly the latter, I'm in the documentary. So Peter and I talked to the filmmaker, Alex Gibney, a lot about how we saw the story and what we thought was important. But one of the remarkable things about Alex as a filmmaker is that he very much does his own work. He is an investigative journalist himself. Okay. And so he 
he had things in that movie that we did not have in our book. And he put it together in a way that was different from the book. And no, I had no creative control over how the movie was put together. And nor, frankly, would I, would I want any. Right. I, don't, I don't think visually. So I wouldn't know how to weigh in on, on, <laughs> on something like that. That is fair. Okay, so I feel like we've talked about the hard-hitting stories, or at least high level. And I'm what I would love to talk to you about Uh-oh, is... Oh, I know it's coming. <laughs> So for those who don't know, Bethany is an expert interviewer. We talked about one of the big interviews that she's done, and she's joining us on June 5th to interview John Carreyrou. But you've interviewed others to the likes of Jennifer Lopez, Alex Rodriguez, Bill Gates, Melody Hobson. The list goes on. I personally would love to hear about the Jennifer Lopez interview because I was reading it and I was like, this is, first of all, it's an amazing interview and I love the way that you put it together. I was actually reading it this morning and I felt like I was sitting next to you while you were interviewing them, which I think is a testament to your writing. But we don't have to dive into that specifically right now. I just want to know of, of all the people that you've interviewed, do you have some favorites? Do you have some memories that stick out for you? Well, I did really like that story actually and it was a bit of a departure, but you know, Vanity Fair does do or did do cover stories on celebrities and so my editor thought it would be a fun and interesting experience for me to go and do this particular cover story. And I actually didn't even really know who A-Rod was. My husband was like, what sport did he play? And I was like, uh, basketball. Anyway. That's hilarious. (laughs) Anyway, I'm I'm not not good with sports or pop culture. But I really liked them and really liked their story of mutual struggle and growth. And Everything is a story at, at the end of the day. And so it was really interesting to listen to them and try to figure out what their separate stories were and how those separate stories converged into their joint story. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I've, out of all the people I've, I've interviewed, they were incredibly gracious people. And when I'd tag along after them, following them to various celebrity events, they would always turn and introduce me. One of them would always turn and introduce me. And when I sat with Alex after Jennifer's show in Las Vegas at her after party, he suddenly turned to me and said, so what about you? I, I've, I've read this that you wrote. And that's amazing. the number of times that somebody you're interviewing actually flips it around and has put the time into figuring out who, who you are to ask, in order to ask you an intelligent question, I mean, I can count that on one hand. I thought it was a real testament to his curiosity and yep. his openness and desire to learn, which mm-hmm. was what some people who knew about him, had to say about him. And I think that shined in your story. It's funny that you say that. I, was, I felt like I was like, I didn't know he was this kind of person who sort of reflected on self and was open to change and open to being a better version of who he was. Completely. And just from a writing standpoint, one of the things about doing business stories, even business stories that are big scandals and in the public consciousness, is you always have to have kind of the graph where you convince the reader that they should care, right? You, it's just, it's part of the writing of it. And it's it's work. Those those graphs are work. And it was so fun to write um, the J-Lo and A-Rod story and think, I don't have to write that. (laughs) They know why they care already. (laughs) Right. Right. We can skip that. Yeah. (laughs) And so from a writing standpoint, that was that was really interesting. (laughs) That's funny. And 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 you say that it was a departure from your traditional work that you had done. And I and I thought that to myself. I was like, I wonder how this came to your lap, like why you would write a story like this, but you said that it was just kind of an interesting challenge and something new. Um, my question is when you're doing a story like that, it does it differ per like who you're interviewing? how much time do you spend with the people? Because, you know, we followed a journey. At one point, you were in their home. At one point, you were at her show. How long does that span? Is it a couple days you come back? Is it 
you pop in, you come back in later, then the story comes later. <laughs> so I think I can't answer that because it's really the only one of those kinds oh, of stories got it. I've okay. done. But, but I know it was supposed to be just an interview at their house. Got and it. then we all got along. And so they ended up expanding it and allowing me to tag around with them for a couple of days, culminating with doing a workout with them at this so uh, cool. fitness chain that Alex has invested yes, in in I, Las Vegas. Yep. Cool, I don't know. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> Def- like, definitely not, not cool. In fact, it was a heated room and it was boilingly hot. <laughs> Working out next to the two of them is, um, let's see, humbling is a good word. But Jennifer couldn't have been. I mean, she's she's such a lovely person because I had to wear. I hadn't brought exercise clothes with me, so I had to get exercise clothes at the studio, and they only had crop tops. This is Las Vegas after all, and I was like a crop top. And so I I was. I I looked at her and I said, I can't. You know, I can't believe I'm wearing this. Look, you know, there's there's my tummy, and she's like, You've had babies. You should be proud of yourself. That's awesome, Jiggle. I was like. Thank you. Oh, what a sweetheart. <laughs> so this is a question that I ask everyone that I interview on the podcast just because I think we're Chicago Ideas, so of course you want to know this. You're based here. Yes. Yes. First, my question is, why Chicago? And then second is, do you think or how does your geographic location influence or touch the work that you do? So why Chicago is a pretty um, bland answer. When I met my husband, he lived in Chicago and I lived in New York and we did the Chicago versus New York discussion. And for various reasons at that time in my life, I was willing to move. And so I came to Chicago. And so that's... As one does, the Chicago-New York discussion, it happens in a lot of relationships, including my own. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. And so I came... I do think it affects the work you do for better and for worse. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel the loss of being part of the New York media community. And I definitely feel the loss of kind of just easy conversations with people, with with sources that don't have to be scheduled so much in advance where you can just say, hey, can I pop over and have a quick coffee with you? And if you're coming from Chicago, you have to be much more like, I'm going to be in town in two weeks. Can we do this? And yeah. so some of the spontaneity um, and ease of those conversations that can lead to to big pieces goes away. And I think that for members of, of the press, it's become much more important to be multi-platform and it's harder to do that. From from Chicago, it's harder to be on the TV shows where yeah. people will see you. And I don't love that that matters, but the days of being able to just sit behind your your computer and never venture out, I think are are are, are long gone. I think yeah. you you need to be you you need to be on TV and you need to be moderating events and and have a little bit more of a presence. And that is harder from from Chicago. On the flip side, I think the positive is that you can get sucked into a New York point of view mm-hmm. and a New York worldview. If, if that's where you live. And when you live elsewhere, you see things differently. And you care a lot less about what other members of the media community think of you because you're not there to, to, to care. Yep. And that can be good and freeing. So I think like, like everything, as you said earlier, two sides of a coin, yep. right? And I agree with you, too. I think when I first came back to Chicago, my biggest challenge, you know, working in digital media was finding not I mean, you can find digital media anywhere, but for the brands that you want to work for, sometimes it feels like, what do I do outside of New York? But then you find it. You find a place like Chicago Ideas that could exist nowhere else. And like you said, two sides to every coin. So I want to know what you think. We've talked about this. We've talked about the evolution of journalism. We've talked about how it differed when you first started to, to what it is today in the age of social media when everyone feels as though they can be a journalist. 
it feels like we sort of reached the pinnacle, but it can't be. So my question is, do you think about what's next? Do you know what's next? Do you have predictions? No, I guess. <laughs> I guess I read this quote recently that um, the two worst things in life are certainty and uncertainty. And I'm paraphrasing, but yeah. I, I think you could apply that to the future of journalism, right? It would be worse if there were certainty and we knew exactly what it was going to be because then there would be no fluidity, no flexibility, no room for experimentation, no room for the unexpected um, breakthroughs. But the uncertainty is pretty bad too. Yeah. I, I don't think anybody has figured out the business model that works. And you just think about journalism in the past. It was a business model that was supported by a totally incidental business. And that's that journalism, print publications were where you advertised. And so the business was supported by advertising yep. money, not by subscribers. It was always the ad money that supported it. And with the ad money moving digitally and most of it being sucked up by Google and Facebook, which, by the way, I think is a great irony that the very thing Google and Facebook depend upon, which is journalism, because if there weren't things to share and things to Google, where would they where be? Would you use it? Yeah. But they're killing the very thing they depend on to feed their ecosystem. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating irony to me. But I don't, nobody solved that, right? Nobody solved that issue of where does the money come from. The New York Times is actually closer to solving it, I think, but at a different scale How do you than. Think they're- they're they're it. they're making money from digital subscribers. They're they're managing to replace some of the ad money and at least come up with a business model that's survivable. But for a lot of old school print publications, magazines, um, etc., even some of the new. Um, web-based entities yeah. uh, like Vox have struggled and Vice has struggled very prominently. And so there's no easy solution. Okay. I love that. And what do you read when you're not writing? What are you reading? So I read a lot. I read fiction. I read nonfiction. I generally have a couple of books um, going at once. Wow. You, so, uh, people, <laughs> you know, that is so fascinating to me. Anyone that's like, oh, I'm reading a few books. I'm like, oh, how? How do you do it? I guess it's not confusing. It's not like you're reading them at one time, but I'm like, how do you get through them? I get asked to blurb a lot of books, so I'm generally reading books uh, written by other journalists or authors that I'm being asked to blurb. And I try to read. I try to read the journal in the Times every day, at least at worst, at least just to glance glance through it. And I cruise around the internet to find interesting things. There are various newsletters I subscribe to where people link to really interesting things. My friend Barry Ritholtz does a list of reads every morning that's that's, that. that's really good. Um, a guy named Dave Pell does something called Next Draft at the end of the day that's um, in the late afternoon. That's really, really good. So I try to be active in both places. I try to cruise through Twitter just to see what people are talking about yep. and maybe be go read that. Um, I'll look at Axios in the morning um, to see what they're focusing on and, and where it, because they'll often have suggestions on deep dive pieces that are also must reads. Yeah. So I, I read pretty voraciously. Yeah. I, grew up, I grew up without a TV set, so I just profoundly uninterested in TV. So you're so lucky. I, I wish I could say that. I'm like, I almost wish that I just never even. No, that's okay. I find it. Believe me, I find other ways to waste time. Not, <laughs> I, I'm not positing that as a perfect yeah. virtue. But. Well, you heard it here, folks. There is always something to read. And Bethany just gave a ton of recommendations, which I look forward to diving into. One thing I just want to cover off on before we hop off is the Theranos story, his story that he wrote. Was that your intro to that sort of whole scandal? Or is that something that you were following before as well. So I had 
obviously paid attention to Theranos because who wouldn't? It right. was this, you know, groundbreaking company run by this young woman. But I hadn't focused on it journalistically Got or it. thought about it. So his pieces were very definitely the first to crack open the story and to say there's, there's something here. Yeah, this yeah. is this is not what it's cracked up to be. So from the standpoint of investigative journalism, that's about as good as it gets to yes. what, what he did. So what's next for you? Is there anything you can share with us? Yes, I have a couple of projects for Vanity Fair that I can't um, totally discuss, but that are underway. And I've been working on a piece for Audible, which is trying to do its own, which is doing, I shouldn't say trying to do, its own long-form content, their own original long-form content. So I'm doing a piece about Chicago, which has actually been... exciting. It's actually been really interesting because even though I've lived here for a decade, I've never reported here and Mm -hmm. I haven't delved into the city and tried to think of the city as a character and a character moving through this very complicated um, modern world is really interesting. So it's it's been a really different thing for me because it's much broader than a, than a business story. And then I'm launching my own podcast. So yeah, so amazing. that's amazing. When can we look for that? It, probably in June. Awesome. It's going to be going through Luminary. So oh, incredible. Then the CEO of Luminary, Matt Sachs, is of course a Chicagoan. So yep. it yep. all comes back to Chicago. Yeah, I've heard a lot end. about <laughs> Luminary, and I'm looking forward to seeing everything that comes with that. But that's exciting, and and, and what a nice what a nice way to talk about it being on one podcast. And Absolutely. Now people can keep up with you in your very own podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, you're going to be joining us back in June when John Kerry rejoins us as well. So I'm looking really forward to that conversation. I'm really excited that you made time to sit down with me today. This has been a really eye-opening conversation for me. Journalism is a field that I respect and it's something that I hope finds a way to have longevity because it's so, so, so important. I appreciate your perspective sharing with us and and just letting us know what might come next, what might not come next, and what's next for you. Great. Um, For our listeners, I hope that you keep up with Bethany, listen to her podcast. Are there other places where they can keep in touch with you? On Twitter, I'm just Bethany Mac 12. Um, I got to Twitter late, so every itera- I was shocked every iteration of Bethany McLean was gone. It's so, so funny. <laughs> I went I, when we were talking about the program. I was looking to tag you. I was like, "Where is she? Where is she? <laughs> no, it's it's at Bethany Mac 12, which is just a, a lame name. But I was so stunned that because I don't have a very common name, I was so stunned that my my name was gone. So that's that's one place. Yeah, and then through the podcast, yes, please. Amazing. We'll keep up with that podcast. And of course, you can see Bethany again on June 5th at Chicago Ideas with John Carreyrou. And we'll take an even deeper dive into journalism's power to bring the truth out. Um, And you can get tickets for that on ChicagoIdeas.com. So stay in touch with us on social media. You can find us everywhere at Chicago Ideas, except on Facebook, where we are Chicago Ideas Week. And if you love today's episode, spread the word and subscribe so you don't miss us. And thank you again to our guest, Bethany McLean. This has been such a fabulous discussion. And to you, our listeners. Till next time. Oh,